Welcome to Shift with CJ. I'm your host CJ and together we will explore the areas of health, human performance, biohacking, psychology and much more that will inspire you to become the best version of yourself. You guys know that is my passion to find ways in which we could elevate the human performance and potential so we could be living the best versions of our life. And this quest takes me all around the world. It takes me to the realm of biohacking, exploring nutrition, neuroscience, and much more. But today, I've got someone special on the show. And why she's special is because she's just done so many things in real life, and we're going to learn some real-life applications on how to perform our best. Today on the show, I've got a speaker, a coach, a facilitator. She is a trainer. She works with executives, managers, and employees of the Fortune 500 companies, guys. And she teaches them about executive presence. She teaches about positive psychology. She's co-authored a book. She's an assistant in University of Pennsylvania, and she's lectured at so many cool places. Shannon Polly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's great to connect with your listeners truly all over the world. Yes, certainly. It's um, a pleasure to have you on the show. I know we've been, I've been chasing you for a very long time, and I finally have you on the show, so that makes me very happy. So <laughs> Shannon, um, let's rewind time for a bit. Now, you've got so many titles under your belt, but <laughs> I want to know, where did you start from? What did you, what kind of like education did you uh, get into and why did you choose this field? It's a good question. It's an interesting journey. So I actually majored in theater studies at Yale. I went to drama school in London. I was a professional actor in New York City for 11 years and I toured the country. and. I had a great time. I loved performing. Uh, but what was interesting is that in college, I debated majoring in theater or psychology. I thought I was a little too practical to be a theater major. But in the end, the bug bit me. And, uh, and then after a while, then I didn't realize what it was happening at the time. But at the, as a, at the moment, I was not feeling so happy as an actor. I was working and living in New York and traveling and having a great time. But mm -hmm. what I found out later is that I was experiencing some pleasure, but not a lot of meaning as, you know, Marty Seligman's original theory of happiness in Authentic Happiness, uh, that book. And so I was confused because people thought, oh, well, this such is an exciting life. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll try working for a Broadway producer. Maybe it's the production side that I want to get involved in. And I got to meet you know, famous stars at opening nights with, you know, be there with Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. And I still wasn't wow. happy because um, all of those people were, they were very wealthy, but they, and they were contributing to the world in as far as art goes, but I didn't feel like I was contributing to the world. So I looked into PhD programs in psychology, but PhD programs uh, back when I was looking are really focused on dysfunction depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, we've gotten very good at treating those things. But in the late 1990s, Marty Seligman said, well, it's just as valid to study what people do well as to study what they don't do well. So um, I was at a, a coaching um, coffee in New York, and I told this woman I was looking at PhD programs, but I wasn't really sure. And she said, oh, have you heard about the MAP program at Penn in positive psychology? And I said, no, what's that? So I looked it up and you know, the light bulb, proverbial light bulb went off because it was research-based. I'd been looking at coaching programs that were not research-based. And I thought, if I'm going to add to my, you know, degrees, I want to have something that um, is actually based in science. So I went to the MAP program and uh, that set me off on a whole new course. Well, that's an interesting journey. I like how you've, um, you've had a little bit of everything in that you know from london to new york and you were living the dream um i've always wanted to live in new york so good on you for that but also listening to your story it it brings so many things to mind it's like you know we've been thinking like you mentioned the world is constantly evolving right and it's always becoming better than it used to be apart from the last two years that we were stuck in lockdown but if you see the general stats 
you know, in the last 30 years, poverty rate have dropped. Um, our hygiene and our medical systems have advanced so much, and that has prevented millions of people from dying. Things like child labor is going uh, low. There are bright things in the world that are happening. Yet, when you look at the current data, most of the people around the world aren't very happy. And now, happiness can be tied to so many different things. It there is some data that shows that happiness can be tied to your genetics and then your genetics can have a predisposition of happiness set point in your life. Then you have things like what happened in your environment, which surprisingly doesn't account for so much. And then there are things that you can do to be more happy. Why do you think people aren't really happy all around the world these days? That's uh, that's a complex question. I think researchers are still working on that. What I would say mm -hmm. is that um, a, a lot of it has to do with community and mm -hmm. connections, and the fact that there are you know the countries around the world that have strong community in Latin American countries. They may have a lower GDP, but they have connections and family, and their well-being tends to be higher. I think that at least in North America. And in other places around the world, the nuclear family is, is you know, gotten smaller or the, the family unit of how people are supporting each other. And we are more disconnected. So I think uh, that is part of it. I think the other thing is around social comparison. So social media has a lot of great uses of connecting people. You know, I recently recovered from shingles and I was feeling kind of isolated and alone at home. and I posted on social media and immediately I had, you know, 50 people responding with ideas and advice and um, I didn't feel alone anymore. Unfortunately, we get compare despair. You know, last summer, looking at Facebook with like, I'm going out to my house in the Hamptons and, and while, while some of us are in lockdown, stuck with children in, in, a, in a house, um, it's hard when we think that other people are, you know, doing better than we are. So I think that that's, also a part of it. Um, I also think that the, you know, sort of Buddhist philosophy that trying to pursue happiness might not actually make you happy, but the trying to pursue meaning may make you happier. So I think that, um, that Marty's new theory of PERMA, of positive emotion, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement, there may be some uh, some factors there in the, the meaning front as well. Excellent. I am also very interested in the area of longevity. And when you look at all around the world, like you mentioned, you find communities where people are living extraordinary amounts of um, years. So we call them sanitarians, which live above 100 or super sanitarians. And um, there are sort of certain geographical areas in the world which are called the blue zones, and they have similar things like you know maybe their GDP isn't that high, but you know they're in close community. They spend time in nature. They spend time with family. They have meaning and purpose. They have some kind of a fasting or spiritual discipline. And surprisingly, these are all of these places. Like there's multiple of them. There's Okinawa in Japan. There's Sardinia. There's Ikaria. And one of the things that I've found very common, apart from all of these, is that they're very, um, they're very stress-free in life. So nothing bothers them a lot, and they're happy all the time. So I think there could be a big connection here where you have all of these other points that are necessary for happiness. Because in the past few years, a lot of people have, or you know, a lot of young people at least, think that accumulating more wealth or you know having more money or having a higher paid job is one of the most important parameters when it comes to being happy yeah. but it only works till a certain bit i mean there is research that says um if you want to let's let's talk in dollars if you wanted to be happy like there is a certain cut point at $75,000 per year and once you cross $75,000 per year then getting more money isn't going to make you very happy but if your life and if your work has some meaning or purpose attached to it, that is the kind of things that actually bring happiness. 
once you, and again, we see it in uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So once you meet with your basic needs, food, shelter, you have some money saved off to go for a vacation. And then after that, money doesn't become a priority. Do you see this a lot? Because I know in millennials that are going to be a higher amount of the workforce these days, um, these theories have been circulating a lot. But I wanted to know in your experience, do you think that uh, people are motivated with things more than money at this point? Or most people are still in the money trap? I think that it depends. It does become the the hamster on the wheel, right? The hedonic treadmill of the more you get, the more you compare to other people. Um, I remember working for this very wealthy Broadway producer who was lamenting the fact that there was another producer who had more money than he did, millions more, and could invest in a in a different show. And uh, and I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, it's so interesting how the bar just keeps getting moved higher. Uh, I I do like the research on money and spending it to buy time. So this week has been, it's been a crazy year and I found someone who could help take my child to summer camp and she's doing a camp that is an hour and a half round trip for my house and spending my money to be able to have that time where I can uh, exercise or meditate or do work has definitely helped increase my well-being. But buying it to buy things um, generally doesn't as much. So the, the you know, painting that hangs on the wall um, may, may make a, a real art historian happy. That might increase their well-being, but you have to tailor that to um, what, you, what you purchase. So what I think what I'm finding is with younger people that I coach in organizations, it is it is harder, at least in North America, to get that you know American dream of the house and the down payment than mm-hmm. it was for our parents' generation. So I think that those things that they're told that they should try to get, it's harder for them to get. Um, jobs, obviously, right now are a little more challenging for that generation as well. So I think you know, and they are com- they are living on social media and comparing themselves to other people who can you know polish their lives and, and make it look perfect online so the, definitely the younger generation has has some has some challenges and at the same time i think that they are more willing to take a risk leave a job if they don't like it and say this isn't working for me whereas you know my father worked as the same job for 40 years so um there are definitely definitely pluses and minuses on on both sides thanks for sharing that so let's get on to the topic of positive psychology. Tell us what positive psychology is and why does it matter? Like if someone who's listening to the show, let's split them into two categories. One person is just an average person living an average life. Why does it matter to them? And on the other hand, why does it matter to high performers? So positive psychology is the scientific study of well-being. And it's not a new concept. It's been around since the days of Aristotle. Uh, Dr. Martin Seligman just coined the term in the late 1990s. It's also been around in terms of humanistic psychology, basically what makes life worth living. And I think that the general person would care about it if you care about your well-being, about being happier, about being healthier, um, and about living longer, as you talked about, because there are definitely uh, correlations and causal data between well-being and health. I think that the high performers that uh, positive psychology has a lot of research and data specifically on uh, strengths, character strengths, how you can leverage what you're already good at to perform even better. And that is a way in in this age where we all are doing a lot of things at the same time to maximize the time. You're more energized when you're doing what you're good at. Um, There's also a lot of data on resiliency. And in this last 16 months, a lot of people have had to reinvent themselves in order to continue to thrive and and sometimes just survive while um, there's a lot of uh, tragedy happening all around us. So um, I think that that the research is really compelling and uh, and it's good to know that, you know, there are practices just like going to the gym every day for your health, that uh, there are positive psychology practices you can use to increase your mental health. 
Amazing. And we'll get to those practices in a while. You mentioned Dr. Martin Seligman. And um, for those of you who, are, who don't know who he is, he's an intelligent guy. He's written over 30 books. I think his books have been published in more than 50 languages. He's also the director of positive psychology at uh, Positive Psychology Center at Penn, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So he's, how was your experience working with him? Like, um, can you share a few things that you learned from him straight, which was, which you did not learn in your um, journey? Well, he's really interesting because I think he, he, he is very honest about being a reformed grouch and that his, you know, the famous stories about his five-year-old said, you know, daddy, if I can stop whining, you can stop being such a grouch. <laughs> and he really went from, you know, learned pe pessimism and mm -hmm. um, that field of study to learned optimism and, and his new book, The Hope, Hope Circuit. So he has embodied that um, connections and uh, energy that comes from putting this research out into the world and trying things on. You know, the joke is that research is me-search. And so I think his research into pessimism was because he was a pessimistic thinker uh, and now he has tools to not be. And he, Marty is always thinking big picture. He's an amazing, he's amazing at raising money. He is amazing at influencing. He is always thinking about what's, what's on the forefront. So every year we have a retreat and uh, all the MAP graduates come together and he talks about, you know, the state of, of positive psychology in the world today and where he's looking to move forward. And he's 76, you know, he's thinking about um, pro, prospective psychology, looking toward the future, that we're not pulled, pulled by the past, we're drawn by the future. Um, he, you know, launched positive health and got funding for that. So it's always very inspiring to think, you know, to listen to him and see where, where his, his brain is going at the moment. Yeah, he's a man um, that I really respect. And because he's just been in this whole field for such a long time, like he's been publishing things before I was born. And in that case, he becomes like a true elder, like being one of those elders in the tribe who you can go up to and ask for anything because he's just had so much of experience. And um, it's really great that, you know, you can work with him and, you know, you can be guided towards so many things. So really nice to know that. And um, you trained with the U.S. Army in a program called Master Resiliency Training. Talk to us about what is Master Resiliency Training and how was your experience there? Yes, yeah, so I was fortunate enough to be part of the training team. I was part of the civilian half of the training team. We had a hybrid civilian military training team, and we trained sergeants who had on average been in the army around 15 or 20 years. And it was a train to trainer program where we were then training privates. They were then training the privates. Um, so it was probably the most meaningful job I've ever had. You know, we're training 150 sergeants at the same time. Uh, sometimes we were doing some on uh, virt virtually, which was, you know, less, uh, <laughs> less common than it is today. Um, sometimes we went on base and listening to their stories and hearing what they have been through and how they've had to deal with it is really eye-opening. Um, I think that I was, very, I was definitely humbled with the level of work ethic. And also, it was exciting to see the level of resistance at the beginning and how we won them over by the end. So. Normal trainings in corporate America might be a day. Um, mm -hmm. And the Army, we got them for eight to 10 days. So wow. then you can right. actually see some change happen. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's exciting to work with people of that caliber because, you know, these guys have been through so much. Some of them might have been into situations of things like wars. Some, some people might have some explosive runoff, like close to them. and I guess it's also difficult to manage them because, you know, with all of these things that happen as a part of military work, you know, like I mentioned, like some explosion around you, it also detroits your 
brain cells and then also lowers down cognitive performance. Uh, you know, we always hear stories about post-traumatic stress disorders and traumatic brain injuries and things like that. So it's very interesting to see that you were able to go in there and like train them. Wow, it was it was it was good. Um, was there anything that one. you? Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I want to add one more thing. So I think that a lot of people have heard about post-traumatic stress disorder, but what was fascinating mm -hmm. to be able to share with the sergeants is the research around post-traumatic growth. And that when you go through a traumatic event, you're actually more resilient if you have a baseline level of well-being than people who haven't been through that event. So just being able to shift the narrative around PTSD was really exciting. And I think that getting to talk to them about their strengths and what they, what's good, what's right with them was um, really eye-opening. And do you think people who aren't in the military, they can um, bring in this, this into their lives, the post-traumatic growth? Because traumas happen everywhere, right? Some people have the tra trauma with a capital T and some people have trauma with like a small T, but it happens everywhere and to most of us. Um, and you talk about resiliency. Is there a preset number of things that you can do to become resilient let's say you weren't in the military and someone who's listening to this show is you know is probably sensitive or kind of gets um gets reacts to things easier easily how do people increase resiliency in their lives that's a great question so first i think the answer is yes you're absolutely right a lot of people go through trauma big t little t i like that I think that over the last 15 months, we've all been through a global pandemic, which could be considered traumatic on various levels, depending on how close you are to it. Um, and when I was talking to a therapist friend of mine, she said the challenge is that uh, the demands have gone up and our resources have gone down. So all of us are feeling a bit strained and a need for resiliency. There are a lot of science-backed tools that can help. I think that Karen Rivich's book, The Resilience Factor, she was the lead trainer for the army training. And she has a lot of great strategies in that book for the people listening. I would say that as far as the research goes, and you probably know this as well, that some of the biggest bang for your buck, as it, as it were, is meditation. And that there's a dosing effect with meditation. So the more you do, the more benefit you get. And you don't have to have a, a minimum as was once thought. Even at five minutes, 10 minutes can help as far as really shifting shifting uh, the way your neurons fire. I would say that, that the other thing that shifted, at least with the army sergeants the most, was around gratitude and focusing on what's working. So a funny story, we um, had, the most famous exercise is called the three blessings exercise from positive psychology, where you write down three things that went well, what, why they happened, what they mean to you, what you can do to get more of that good thing. So for those of you listening, you could try that tonight. And research showed that people who did that for a week were happier up to six months later. Um, now, there's some more subsequent research from Sonia Lubomirsky that if you feel like you have to do it, if it feels like a chore, it won't make you happier. So um, do it voluntarily. But we couldn't call the exercise the three blessings exercise for the army because that would be a little too woo-woo, as we say in mm -hmm. the West. So we called it hunt the good stuff. So every day for 10 days, they had to hunt the good stuff. And on the first day, they had to do it. And they were like, Ugh, okay, I had a good beer last night. And by day four or five, they really started to get into it. And there was a, a sergeant who was sitting in the front row and he took the microphone that was at his table and he said his good stuff was that he had a 10 minute conversation with his son and it was the longest he'd ever talked to him. And I looked over wow. and I see tears coming down his cheek. And I thought, wow, <laughs> gratitude, that's really, it's really remarkable. 
Yeah, gratitude is super powerful. And also, I think it has a carryover effect because once you start putting down these ideas of, you know, why you're feeling blessed and what happened well in the day, and then you um, support that with how can you get, like you mentioned, how can you get into that state again? And why do you think that was important? And all every time you write things like this, um, you're also giving your subconscious mind instructions to focus on that. So there is a part of the brain called the reticular activating system. And this is um, a region of the brain which is it's similar to like pattern recognition. So let's say if you wanted to buy a car and then you you've gone out hunting for a car and you really like one special car. And chances are every time you're driving on the street, you'll see that car pop up a lot. And it's not like that car just started coming up in your awareness right now. It was always there. But this part of your brain, which is um, known for recognizing the things that you want to focus on, keeps bringing the same things back to your attention again and again. So over a period of time, there's also uh, this effect where if you focus on one thing, then more of that thing keeps coming to you. And then if it's a feeling, and if you can replicate how you're feeling in that present moment, then you are able to tap into those feelings again and again. We also know that neurons that wire together, fire together, wire together. So as long as you're firing those same neurons in the same thought process, chances are you're, you're just keep getting better at it. And then it has a multiplier effect of, you know, you mentioned six months, but could have it uh, for anyone who's listening, just, you know, being in front of your family or not being angry or just, you know, showing up to work and not being frustrated is a big win as well. Because if you're conditioned to, you know, just a lot of people have this negative bias around the world and they think everything is happening to them and they show up in places and are uncomfortable then I think this is like a great exercise because you're rewiring the brain's networks, neuronal networks, to recognize all the good things that are there and the more energy and focus and time, even from the quantum uh, theories, if you focus more on a certain thing, then you'll see more of it. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's really valuable for people who are listening. And thank you. Yes, the reticular activating system. That's a, that's a good... Uh... A good bit of info that your listeners yeah. remember. Yeah, it always works. <laughs> so um, you also look at um, or you tell people about their characters and how a person's character traits can influence their identity and how they show up in the world. Do you think, what kind of character traits do you think we need now in this world, which has never been like before, 2021? where some parts of the world are still they're getting back to normal but some part of the world are still in things like lockdown and you know there are crises with jobs and opportunities so what kind of uh, character traits that should people employ at this point yes yeah, so there are a lot of different character assessments there's um there's strengths finder i like to use the assessment by Chris Peterson and Marty Seligman, the Character Strength Survey, VIA, via character.org, if you wanna look it up. It's actually free, um, unlike the other strengths assessments, and you, it's in 26 languages at this point. Um, you can take it age 10 and up, and there's a lot of data on the relationship between strengths and well-being, strengths and health, strengths and performance. So. The research on strengths is really that the top five, six, seven strengths are considered your signature strengths. They're the ones that you don't have to, no one has to ask you to use them. They just come naturally to you. And those are the ones that energize you as well. So I think, you know, I was coaching a woman at a, at a professional services firm and we looked at her top strengths and they were, you know, we divide them sometimes between the head strengths and the heart strengths. And she had, Things like love and kindness and um, social intelligence as, as top strengths. And her job was in mergers and acquisitions. And I said, so do you get to use your strengths at your work? And she said, no, I'm a woman in mergers and acquisitions. I can't show any of those or else I will look weak. Uh, and so it was 
kind of heartbreaking to think she wasn't able to use those at work. So we talked about how she could use them outside of work. And I think that really it's whatever your top strengths are to make sure that you get to use them on a daily basis, that you get to access them. If appreciation of beauty and excellence is a top strength, then make sure that you get to go outside, make sure you get to appreciate a sunset. I have one client who is totally overwhelmed with work, but love of learning is a top strength and she's learning a new language and she's learning to play piano. And that is her outlet during COVID. For me, kindness is a top strength. So even though I have a lot of work on my plate, I'm still baking food for my neighbor, my new neighbor, and I am organizing you know, parties for my kids' school to connect each other. So I think that it's not necessarily which strength, but using your top strengths. And the research specifically shows if you can use them in new ways, people who did that for a week were also happier up to six months later. So if it's something new and different, something novel, that um, is also a pathway to happiness. Amazing. Thank you for that. Um, you've also trained a lot of people from the Fortune 500 companies. How, what, what kind of challenges do people face in Fortune 500 companies on an individual level, on a company level? And um, yeah, talk to us about that. Well, I think that people everywhere have similar issues. I think that we are all overscheduled and overbooked and we think that we can do more than we can. So I like the, um, there's an HBR article called Manage Your Energy, Not Your Time. I don't know if you have show notes, but maybe you could pop that in there. I, that's one of my yeah, favorites. I'm just taking notes right now. Great, yeah, by Jim Lair. I really like that one because I, I think that that ties into the well-being aspect and the health you were mentioning with the blue zones. I think the other thing it really comes down to is communication and managing other people. And that it's really challenging to motivate and manage other people. So in the communication front, how do you do that in a, in a way where you have Slack, you have text, you have email, and everyone's overwhelmed and a little stressed out. Um, and then, you know, are you better at communicating with your boss? Are you better at managing up? Are you better at managing with your people? I was doing a 360 with a client recently who got great reviews from his direct reports and terrible feedback from his boss. So clearly um, he, he may need to work on how to communicate what he's doing in these crazy times. But I, I feel like resiliency is a universal, uh, we're all sort of underwater at the moment. And I, and I have a lot of clients who think that they should just be performing at 2019 levels and that nothing should be different, even though they have you know a pod in their basement and multiple children running around and interrupting phone calls at the same time, or they have you know family members with health issues. We have, uh, at least some of my clients seem to have this thought of, but I still, I can't, you know, I can't let anybody know that this is stressful for me. And I would say that the, the thing that I direct them to most frequently is self-compassion. So Kristen Neff is a researcher out of UC Berkeley. I think she's in Texas now. And she, her website is self-compassion.org. She has uh, a couple books out, a new book coming out called Fierce Self-Compassion. And the misconception is that when we're kind to ourselves, that we're actually not gonna perform as well. But the research doesn't bear that out. The research shows that actually when you're, when you're compassionate with yourself, you are more likely to perform better. Sort of like if you had a, you know, a manager or a coach who is understanding, then you can relax and um, maybe perform better. Whereas if you're, someone's a drill sergeant, um, that only works for a short period of time. Yeah, um, I one of the things that I also find commonly with people is that they don't give themselves a break. Most of the people want to step into the roles, even if they aren't really, they want to step into the roles of this type A go-getter personality, which um, nine times out of 10 backfires because as you said, it's good to be resilient, but there's a certain point till which you can put water in a cup and then it starts overflowing. 
your resiliency also sometimes has a limit. And when you have like, you know, sick family members or uh, kids that are demanding your time and attention, and then you have to be on Zoom meetings and you have to submit certain things, it just takes out a lot of your energy. And like you mentioned, like managing your energy is highly important because you can keep throwing things in the calendar day in and day out, but it all that thing like sucks out of your energy. And if you're not taking the right steps, sleep could be one, nutrition could be one, taking time to meditate could be one, you know, or other biohacks like putting electrodes on your head. I don't know what, but if you're not giving in the time to recharge your energy levels, then after a certain point of time, either you're going to be sick or you're just going to be frustrated and walk away from it. And a lot of people, I think right now, are in this position where they're either frustrated or they're just like, you know what, that's it, I'm done. And then that there's only so much point till where you can bring your resiliency to, given that every other factor that you're dealing with is under control. So I always keep tell people that, you know, I can imagine that you have a lot of pressure on you and there is a lot of things that are happening and it might all feel chaotic, but you don't have to, you know, outperform everyone. You just have to do your best at the moment. And then if things don't happen in the right space, just allow yourself that time and space to, you know, be sensitive to yourself and just don't be too harsh on yourself and say that, you know, I, you know, I messed it up or things you know, some kind of a negative emotion to that. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. It's, uh, I think everyone who's listening to the show, one of the things that you can take away from this is like, be more compassionate towards yourself. We are compassionate towards other people, but when it comes to us, it doesn't happen much. Now, you mentioned social intelligence. Tell us what social intelligence is and what could we do to take it to our advantage? Social intelligence is one aspect, a smaller aspect of the umbrella of emotional intelligence, which is, uh, was first researched by Peter Salve at Yale University. He actually was my professor. He was my Psych 110 professor. And uh, I didn't know that he was famous when I was sitting in his classroom. He uh, famously said that the biggest mistake he ever made was telling Daniel Goldman that he could use that title for his book, because of course, Daniel Goldman became famous with his book, mm -hmm. Emotional Intelligence. Then again, it, it became more of common, uh, common knowledge. But social intelligence is, the, is a smaller aspect of it, which is an ability to read other people, to read their emotions, um, to read the room, and to be able to adjust uh, how you're doing with with uh, based on what you notice, which I think is much harder nowadays that we are virtual. It is great that people are getting on video and before it was just phone calls, although it'll be at a little draining. So it's easier for social intelligence, but I think that not having that face-to-face -face and physically being in person can be can be difficult when you're trying to manage office politics, for example, um, or or navigate relationships. Mm -hmm. And um, this brings me to my next question. Now, I agree we're in behi behind computer screens and mobile phones and laptops. And now, all of a sudden, there is also another issue that comes in, which is trust. Because when you see people, somehow you kind of understand their vibe or, you know, you can feel their energy or the way they talk. And it's much easier to trust people. Do you find it's becoming more difficult to trust people? And when you don't trust people, then, you know, you're either you aren't very transparent enough or you're not, um, your guards is always up. So you're not going to be performing to your highest. Do you find that to be common? So the research on performing virtually, because I actually was doing work on virtual teams before the pandemic. The research mm -hmm. shows that in order to convey trust in a virtual space, you have to be really accountable and do what you say you're going to do by the day you say you're going to do it or communicate and over communicate what what's happening because people can't see you at the water cooler. They can't see, you know, that you've come in and you're stressed out and it looks like you've had a hard weekend. 
All they know is you didn't send me the document that I needed to get. So I think that the short answer is yes, it is difficult to navigate completely virtually. We are human beings, we're, we're meant to connect with people. Then again, there are positives. I mean, you and I are speaking right now and without this technology, you know, we might not have been able to do that years ago. So um, I would say that the, that the hack, if you will, for it is being really uh, transparent about what's going on. Um, I have, I was doing a workshop and my, they wouldn't let my kid into camp. <laughs> I had to tell the women on the line, this is what's happening. This is, you know, and, and the same day my car got broken into. So it was a lot going on, but I was just transparent. And I just said, this is what's happening. I'm going to be right back as soon as I can. And, uh, and I think that uh, people are more willing to um, be open to that level of vulnerability. Yeah, that, that was going on in my head that I think vulnerability is one of the biggest things that um, is missing because I think it's difficult to open up to people as well when it's virtual, and especially if you haven't met them ever, then everyone always has, I mean, they have their own guard up, like I mentioned. When you're in front of people, it's easier to be more vulnerable. Um, and thanks for sharing that. I think it's very important um, for people who are listening to know as well that the more you show others that, you know, you're like them, your vulnerable side, or, you know, you're it could be your joking side, whatever. Um, the more people start, um, I wouldn't say trust, but like they just start connecting more with you. And then that's the time people will, it's more easier to pull off conversations. It's easier to pass on assignments. It's easier to cooperate because they have seen this side of you, which is not just, you know, like everyone else. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Now, what are some practical takeaways that people can people who are listening to the show can take away for like let's say positive psychology and implement in their lives today you mentioned gratitude which is great and you mentioned um you know like there's the positive thinking approach and the, the three blessings we'll call it blessings for the show and what else is on the list well i would clarify i, I think I didn't say positive thinking. So there's a bit of a misnomer and a, a bad rap that positive psychology gets mixed up with the secret and positive thinking, thinking grow rich. So I know what you meant. Um, mm -hmm. I just want to clarify because the, you know, we often get confused with Tony Robbins and happyology. Um, while there is some research on say visualization, like athletes visualize the, the, golf ball going into the hole. Um, mm -hmm. And you, of course, talked about, you know, how our, our subconscious helps us uh, focus on what's, what's, what's good. Um, blatant, po blatant positive thinking, even if you're in a bad mood, is actually worse because you're basically denying the actual emotion that you're having. But back to your question. So I would say um, I mentioned meditation. Uh, I have a, a colleague who has a website called mindfulness.com. His name is Corey Mascara. He is also a MAP graduate, and I think he does fantastic work. Uh, Tara Brock is also a, a great meditation teacher and has um, free podcasts. Um, I mentioned gratitude, the, the three blessings exercise, and I mentioned self-compassion. So Kristen Neff has meditations on her website as well and workbooks. I would say the other thing is around metacognition. And um, I'm thinking about this because Dr. Aaron Beck is 100 years old this week. Hmm. He is the founder of Cognitive Therapy. And we have the honor of getting to see him on a, a webinar with Marty Seligman. He is sharp as a tack at 100 years old. And he's his daughter is carrying on the work. And his work is roughly... Um, he calls it the ABC model. So you have an activating event, you have a thought, and you have a consequence. And then you dispute that thought. So let's say the example of when my car got broken into outside my house and I had a workshop to do in 20 minutes. So the activating event is the car window getting broken. The thought is the B, the belief. 
the B is the, your heat of the moment thought. So that's where you don't edit. And trust me, when we had the military, when we did this with the military, there was a lot of colorful language. So the thought was, this is terrible. I have to do a workshop. I need to call the police. Um, this happened before. You know, I, I don't. They only got two dollars. What a waste! It's going to take. You know, it's going to take all my time going to get the car repaired. Um, you know, of course, why did this have to happen 15 minutes before? I'm going to get to be distracted my workshop. You know, the, the ticker tape goes through your head. Yep. So the C is the consequences, and that's your emotion or your reaction to the thoughts. So those thoughts made me more anxious. They made me um, frustrated. They made me distracted, less able to focus. And that's not helpful. And usually when something happens, we just think, wow, I'm frustrated. That made, you know, my, my eight-year-old says, you made me mad. <laughs> I can't say, well, actually, it's your thought that made you mad. So yeah. the, the D is the disputing. And that is where you play the attorney against your thoughts in B. So how can I argue against my thoughts? Well, you know, this happens. It, it's, it's not a big deal. It's just a car window. It'll get fixed. Nobody got hurt, right? So it's shifting those thoughts in the moment. So like what you were saying around uh, focusing on what's good, it's similar. It's, it's in the similar vein of let's look for what's working and, um, and dispute those thoughts. So I would say that as a tool has been really helpful. It's also in uh, the resilience factor. And I find that my clients really respond to having something practical. They can write it down. And then you can start to see your patterns. So if... And every time my kids get in an argument, I have the same trigger, the same pattern, then I can start to work uh, through that pattern, work on a deeper level. I really like that. I'm going to keep it as a part of my daily thing as well. Because uh, sometimes, yeah, you face situations in life, and especially when you haven't faced them before, it's really hard to get to that D. Our, we're excellent at navigating through ABC and then getting stuck on C and then, you know, just the cycle keeps on going with that C, but we never reach to that D. So whoever is listening, this is a fantastic model. Um, please use it. And thank you, Shan, for sharing that with us. Now, it, we're coming to the end of this interview. And if you had a time machine, and if you could go back like 10 or 20 years, and you could give your younger self one or two or three pieces of advice, now, this um, can be around psychology, it could be around health, it could be around parenting, it could be around anything. What would you go back and tell your younger self? That's a great question. I would tell myself two things. One, I would tell myself to, that this, this body is the only one I have and that I should focus on health. Um, turn away the Twinkies that I had in college. <laughs> and the other thing I would say is to invest more in relationships. So also in college, I was so focused on theater and I was passionate and I was focused on the, the A in PERMA, the achieving, but I didn't engage as much with meeting those fascinating people. And now I look back and I think, wow, they're all doing amazing things, albeit in different fields. And I kind of missed out. In, in always um, having such a singular focus because the research in positive psychology can be summed up in three words. And this is from Chris Peterson, who is, has passed away. It all can be summed up with other people matter. You cannot reach the highest levels of happiness without having close relationships with other people. So for those of you listening, if you are in lockdown or if you know, you're just struggling to get by and you think, I'm not gonna have coffee with that friend, I don't have time to do that, don't. Make sure that you connect with that colleague, with that friend, with that family member, because those are the, the things that really sustain you. And, and that's what I would have told my younger self. Wow, that's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. I think we're all running so fast in this thing called life that sometimes, old relationships old friends you know sometimes we migrate to different countries and cities and um, only when probably facebook reminds us it's their birthdays we think of them but we should perhaps think of them more often and one of the other things also i read in an, this was a book but there was an article summary about this 
it was um it was basically confessions of a person who was dying and most of the people when they're on their deathbed and you ask them like what was it in life that you probably should have done more and one of the things that they mentioned is relationships and people most of the times when they're dying they always come up to this that i wish i spent more time and energy and invested more in those relationships and i could you know spend a few more years with my friends or you know my my wife or my kids or my grandkids so i think this is a common trend that we keep seeing especially nowadays because you know our attention is demanded by so many things there are advertisements there's social media there's so many other things that can keep us busy and um, in a narrow focus so take that time off call an old friend go give someone a hug and <laughs> life will be beautiful shannon thank you so much for being on the show i really appreciate all the work that you've been doing all the trainings that you've conducted all the knowledge and wisdom that you've brought to us on the show today thank you so much if people want to you know reach you or learn more about you what's the best way to uh, get to know you sure my website is shannonpolly.com uh so polly like polly want a cracker bird <laughs> and um the book is character strengths matter how to live a full life i don't receive any any revenue from the book all of it goes to a scholarship at the university of pennsylvania and we've raised over $60,000 for students to study at the University of Pennsylvania so far. We are hoping to uh, create an endowment so that we can um, make this go on in perpetuity. So Character Strengths Matter or, or my website. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much as well. And this is CJ, your host, signing out from the Shift with CJ podcast. Everyone have a great day ahead of you and Eid Mubarak to everyone who's listening. Eid Mubarak. Eid Mubarak. Thank you. Your time and presence with us through this podcast is highly appreciated. If you want to learn more, then head over to our website, www.shiftwithcj.com.